Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Our gospel reading is one of the more dramatic stories of Jesus' healing. Shows up in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew 8, Mark 5, Luke 8. The story of Jesus and the man with the legion of demons, the swines and all that. So today I'm preaching on demons. And I'm going to have to enlist some help from my good friend, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and his book, Demons. It's a big novel, 733 pages, entitled Demons. I need to tell you, you probably know this, but I still want to be on record as saying this, that though Fyodor Dostoevsky was not a theologian, he was a novelist, No one has influenced me more theologically, probably, than Dostoevsky. Um, I'm not unique about that. I mean, many theologians have been very influenced by Fyodor Dostoevsky. But uh, he's, he's really helped me. I read Demons for the first time in September of 2006. And... It was like, it was a, well, yeah, there's a picture of me reading the conclusion. I'm at the end of Demons uh, in Rocky Mountain National Park. Because, you know, who doesn't put a 700-page hardback book in their pack when they go hiking in the mountains, right? That's what we do. Uh, so, yeah, that was, that's, that's me reading the conclusion of this novel. Earlier, though... Around page, well, pages 250, 51, and 52, I read something that was, it was for me the red pill awakening moment. It opened my eyes to the demonic nature of religious nationalism. This is 2006. I was reading at my home and I read this. It was taking the red pill. I saw the matrix. I woke up. I walked out of my house, still holding the book, and just walked for a mile, just taking in what the epiphany I'd had while reading Demons by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Um, the book begins like this. Um, it begins like this. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them leave. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how 
he who had been possessed with demons was healed. We'll come back to Dostoevsky's demons in a little bit, but I want us to, uh, just want us to spend a moment with that story in Luke chapter eight of how Jesus sets this man free. The story begins with Jesus saying, let us go over to the other side. This is the other side of the Sea of Galilee, but you have to understand that was the Decapolis. That was the 10 cities. That was Gentile. This is Jesus' first foray into the Gentile world. Now, Gentiles have come to him periodically. They would come for healing. But this is the first time that Jesus says, let's go to the other side. We're going to see Jesus among the Gentiles. He crosses the sea and he gets to the other side and everything's unclean. Unclean Gentiles, unclean tombs, unclean pigs, unclean spirits. Everything, Jesus has entered a world that is unclean, but it's Jesus. And Jesus is not contaminated by our uncleanness. When Jesus comes among us, he comes as Savior. Now, there was a man on the other side in the Capitalist who was in a lot of trouble. He had been captured by demonic powers to the most extreme since he, he had a legion, he had a battalion of demons. He, he wasn't just slightly influenced. He was, he was almost tumbling right out of humanity. He was no longer wore clothes. He lives in the tombs. At one point he'd been, they tried to restrain him because presumably he was dangerous and violent, but he breaks the chains and is driven by the demons into the wilds. But he encounters Jesus. And Jesus takes the demons out of the man. They enter the swine. This is a very interesting story. The swine become deranged. And in mass, as a herd, they rush off the cliff and are drowned in the lake. But Luke really wants to draw our attention not to the herd of swine, but to but to the man whom Jesus has healed. And the way Luke tells the story, if you read it real carefully, you have to read it like 50 times. <laughs> you start seeing these things. Everything is, there's a before and after. Everything is before and after Jesus. Everything is B.C. and A.D. Come on now. So I'll show it to you. This man, before and after Jesus. Before, he wore no clothes. And these are just quotes from the text. He wore no clothes. After, he was clothed. So, so Jesus is restoring his dignity. Right? Before, he fell down and shouted. After, he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. He's at peace. He's no longer writhing on the ground and shouting. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Before, he was driven by the demons. After, he was in his right mind. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. 
So he's no longer driven by demons. He is in his right mind. Before, he did not live in a house but among the tombs. After, Jesus says, return to your home. This is salvation. Uh, finding our way back home. You know, we, we use these metaphorical language. We're lost. What, what, is, what is to be lost? Well, you're not at home. This man was lost, but Jesus saves him and he finds his way back home. I particularly like the way the story ends. Verse 39. Jesus says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. Oh, did you see that? Did you catch that? Jesus says, now go tell everybody how much God has done for you. And he goes out and tells everybody how much Jesus has done for him. This former demoniac is a pretty good theologian. He's figured it out. Jesus is God. And now he knows what God is like because God is like Jesus. And he becomes the first Christian missionary to the Gentile world. I mean, he just shows up in those towns, those 10 cities, the Decapolis, and I'm sure he gathers a crowd and says, I've got a pretty amazing story. You want to hear it? In fact, you may have heard of me. I used to be the guy, the naked man, screaming in the tombs at night. And he tells them what the God-man Jesus Christ has done for him. The human being consists, and I'm going to be careful, I don't want to say these are parts, but I don't know what language to use. The human being consists of spirit, soul, and body. But as, as a together, again, we're not parts, but in a synthesis. God forms humankind from the dust of the earth, breathes the spirit of life, God's own spirit, into the dust, and humankind becomes a living soul. So body and spirit and a soul. And so we have these constituent parts. I don't like the word parts. Aspects of our being. We have a spiritual side. We have our soul that, that really is the combination of the breath of God and the dust of the earth. And we, we become cognizant and aware and have our rich emotional life and all of that sort of thing. But there is... Um, the phenomenon of the demonic, which is not part of what the human being is to be. But human beings can be captured by the demonic. And when that happens, they're no longer free. They are driven impulsively toward that which is harmful and self-destructive. Now, the precise nature of the, the demonic is beyond what I want to try to explore in a Sunday morning sermon. I'm not sure that I fully understand it myself anyway. Uh, but what I do know is that what Jesus did for the Gerasene man, he can do for you. you. You come to Jesus even with your demons. You understand what I mean? I mean, the, how many of you understand that there are impulses towards self-destruction? That, that, that even you can even be aware of it. This is going to be bad for me, but I 
just, I'm just driven to do it. Understand that is demonic. It's not part of who you are. It's not who you are. You won't be at home like that. So what do you do with those demons? You come to Jesus with them. And you say, Jesus, help. Jesus set me free. And he will. Because this is who Jesus is. This is what he comes to do. He comes to save us and to heal us and to set us free from our demons. Now, let's return to Dostoevsky's demons. He wrote this book in 1872. It's the, I think he has five great masterpieces. Notes, this is the order they're written in. Notes from Underground, which has the seeds of the, some say there's only four great masterpieces. Crime and Punishment, The Idiot, Demons, and Brothers Karamazov. By the way, don't read this book. I mean, you can if you want, but this is, this is not a pitch for you to read this book. If you start with Crime and Punishment, if you like it, then continue to explore. But don't, don't just, you know, I, he said, let me just tell you about the book. That'd be better, Okay. So Dostoevsky writes this book. It's published in 1872. And it's how to describe it. I mean, I've read it three times. It's, it's, it's an attack upon the rising nihilism, that is, you know, belief in nothing, among the young progressive intellectuals in Russia in the 1860s. Dostoevsky himself had been, went through a period of that and, be, and belonged to a revolutionary group and got arrested and almost executed and went to prison and recovered his Christian faith. And he sees now in the 1860s, the young intelligentsia, the progressives are headed in a very destructive direction. And he, he understands his own experience with that. And they're, they're done with Christianity. They're done with faith. They're done with all that. And they're going to bring in a brave new world to revolution and all that. And he sees how dangerous this is. And he starts to write a pamphlet. <laughs> He's going to write a little pamphlet, you know, nonfiction. Says, well, now listen to me, kids. And he doesn't do that. Instead, he writes a 733-page story. A novel. There's, kind of, there, there's, there's historical elements in it, but it's a, it's a novel. Um, it was not well received, by the way, by those for whom it was intended. Those young nihilists. They, Dostoevsky had been popular with them until then, and then they were done with him. But history has you know, treated Dostoevsky very well. The book is amazingly prophetic. It's published in 1872. It's just a little bit ahead. See, 70, 80, You know, it's, it's a generation ahead. It, it's anticipating the Bolshevik Revolution and the rise of Soviet communism and all that that would bring to the land of Russia. It begins in 1917. Well, the book, there's lots of characters. You know, that's typical of Russian novels. But maybe the most important is Stepan... Verkovinsky, Stepan Verkovinsky. He is a, <laughs> he's a comical character. He's 53 years old, kind of a pseudo intellectual, has been something of a teacher, a lecturer. He's, he's 
something, he's, a, he's comedic, he doesn't know it. He's very melodramatic. And he is someone who has, he has, he has outgrown his childhood Christian faith. You know, and he's sort of, well, you know, that's fine for the peasants, but you know, for those of us who are in line, I mean, they can have their religion. I would not presume to take it away from them, but you know, here, I'll give you a quote. This is, this is how he talks. I believe in God, but let us distinguish. I believe in a being who is conscious of himself in me. <laughs> I love that. But I cannot go on believing like my serving woman. As far as Christianity is concerned, for all my respect for it, I am not a Christian. Okay. 53-year-old Stepan Berkovinsky. And then there is a group of, uh, kind of a cell a group of these young nihilists, they don't believe in anything, they're done with everything, revolutionaries. They, they, want, to, they want to start the revolution in their little town. And, and uh, these young revolutionary nihilists include Berkovinsky's son and some of his former pupils. Uh, they become the herd. They become the ones who are possessed with the demons and there's a lot of destruction that occurs. What, what Dostoevsky is showing is that what Verkovinsky had flirted with that, you know, we don't really believe anything anymore. These young people, generation younger, are rushing headlong into. They're very adamant about it. The translator, the, the best translation of all Dostoevsky stuff is Richard Prevere and Larissa Volokonsky, their husband and wife. And they're Christians, and uh, they do a good job with translating Dostoevsky. Uh, Richard Prevere says concerning demons, For Dostoevsky, demons are a legion of isms, nationalism, empiricism, materialism, socialism, anarchism, nihilism, and underlying them all, atheism. Because the question is, once you get rid of God, then what? Once you get rid of God, then what? These young people, they want to get rid of God, but then what? Well, the answer is given to us by Alexei Kirillov. He is, he is one of the, he's 27 years old. He's an engineer. He's an atheist. He's become an atheist, and he he's, doesn't believe in anything and wants to change the world. Here's a quote. If there is no God, then I am God. The will is all mine, and it is my duty to proclaim self-will. Can it be that no one on the whole planet, having ended God and believed in self-will, dares to proclaim self-will to the furthest point? They're all too scared. I want to proclaim self-will. I may be the only one, but I'll do it. This is indicative of this group. I'm going to read it again. This, this is pure Nietzsche, by the way. This is Nietzsche's will to power. Dostoevsky never read Nietzsche, but he knew where the zeitgeist was going. If there is no God, then I am God. The will is all mine, and it is my duty to proclaim self-will. Can it be that no one on the whole planet, having ended God and believed in self... See, the, the, the question is, after God, then what? Well, for career love, it's self-will. Can it be that... No one on the whole planet, having ended God and believed in self-will, dares to proclaim self-will to the fullest point. They are too scared. I will proclaim self-will. I may be the only one, but I'll do it. 
All right, so what does, what does our young nihilist friend, Alexei Kirillov, what does he do with his self-will, with his newfound freedom? What does he do? Well, he kills himself. That's what he does. And he sees it as a noble act. He's one of four suicides in the novel. You can't have a Russian novel without a bunch of suicides. But the point is to believe in nothing but your own self-will is suicide, if not literally, then spiritually. To believe in nothing but your own self-will is spiritual suicide. But the novel does not end with a suicide. It ends with a salvation. The old Stepan Verkovinsky. The 53-year-old man who has thought, thought he outgrew Christianity, had very condescending attitude toward it. Yeah, it's fine for the peasants. But, and then had also, you know, indoctrinated his son and some students along those lines. Um, he realizes as he thinks, sees things spinning out of control among these people. He comes to his senses and he realizes that he's just been an old fool. And his foolishness has also been responsible for leading other people astray. He becomes a pilgrim. He just sits out. He says, I'm just going to walk to some holy monastery or something. And he just, without really any preparation, he just walks out and starts walking towards some distant monastery. Gets caught in the rain. Ends up contracting a fever. He meets a, a young woman who is selling Bibles. She has compassion on him and tries to take care of him, even though she just met him. And now he's lying on a sick bed. And he asks the young woman to read the Bible to him. And he says this. She's read, she's read some passages, but then he says, now read me one more passage about the pigs. It's there, those pigs. I remember demons entered into the pigs and they were all drowned. You must read it to me. I'll tell you why afterwards. I want to remember it word for word. I need it word for word. In the Orthodox Church, this story of Jesus and the demoniac and the legion and the pigs, it shows up in their lectionary cycle twice every year. So Dostoevsky would have heard this every twice every year, but so would, it, you know, in his childhood, so would... Berkovinsky, he's heard this story. And there he is. He's, in fact, he's dying. He's there on his deathbed. And he says, now read me one more passage about the pigs. It's there, those pigs. I remember demons entered into the pigs and they all drowned. You must read it to me. I'll tell you why afterwards. I want to remember it word for word. I need it word for word. And so she does. She reads and it's there in the text. He puts the whole story and she reads the story that we just heard for our gospel reading today. After she concludes that reading, Berkovinsky says, my friend, this is a wonderful and extraordinary passage. These demons who come out of a sick man and enter into the swine, it's all the sores, all the stench, all the uncleanness, all the big and little demons accumulated in our great dear sick man. But the sick man will be healed and set at the feet of Jesus and everyone will look with amazement. My dear, you will understand after, but now it excites me very much. 
This is his return. Something he's heard in childhood. And he realizes that he's an old sick man with lots of unclean things in him, all the sores, all the stench, all the uncleanness, all the big and little demons accumulated. But he says the sick man will be healed and sit at the feet of Jesus and everyone will look with amazement. Having returned to his childhood Christian faith, he dies three days later. This passage was pivotal in Rene Girard's own conversion, this great thinker that I've referenced now and then. Uh, he uh, was essentially an agnostic, but he saw himself in this story and he saw the trajectory he was on and he returned to his faith. So what is the message in all this today? Is this just a sort of a literary analysis of demons by Dostoevsky? What is the message? The message is this. Don't surrender your faith in Jesus to an ideological ism. Don't surrender your faith in Jesus to an ideological ism. What do I mean? Isms like nationalism, socialism, capitalism, Marxism, conservatism, progressivism, fundamentalism, liberalism, whatever ism. Isms can easily become possessed and turn into a herd and rush off a cliff. Just remember that. Isms easily become possessed, turn into a herd and rush off a cliff. So sit with Jesus instead. Jesus will put you in your right mind. I heard somebody critiquing me the other day, criticized me. I heard it secondhand, you know. I heard they, this is what they said about you. <laughs> they said, that BZ, he's a one-trick pony. All he ever does is talk about Jesus and the kingdom of God. To which I said, well, first of all, that's two tricks. And secondly, amen. Amen. If that's, if that's the worst you can say about me, I'm good to go. Stick with Jesus. He'll put you in your right mind. I don't trust isms. And when I say stick with Jesus, sit with Jesus, stay, I don't mean Jesus hijacked by those who want to turn Jesus into a pitch man for their ism. That happens. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you be discerning. But usually you can spot it if you want to. When people are trotting Jesus out as a pitchman for their ism. They're not really following. They're following their ism. And then they want Jesus to endorse it. You'll, you'll see that. Don't do that. I'm not talking about that Jesus. I'm talking about Jesus. I mean, just stay in the Gospels for a while. Read the Gospels on your knees. And ask Jesus to speak to you. Now, following Jesus, I don't know, I really want to be plain here. Following Jesus may sometimes look conservative or sometimes look progressive. Did I get that right? Left and right? Okay. Uh, 
I mean, I can, I can promise you that there are people, not so much here, but out there, who are very upset with me because I'm so conservative and others are upset with me because I'm so progressive. I'm just, I'm neither. I mean, how I come off at a, at a particular issue at a particular moment, I have no allegiance to any of these isms. None of them. Or political parties. None. I have no allegiance to them. I, I really just want to be that one trick pony following Jesus. Hallelujah. We're following Jesus, not an ideological ism. And I'm saying this, I mean, I'm preaching this today, not just in a vacuum. This is, I'm, I'm saying this today because we live in an ideological moment when isms are possessing people and turning them into a destructive herd of swine. <laughs> That's pretty plain. Don't be a part of that. Don't be a part of that. All right, let's not end with the pigs. Let's end with looking at the man Jesus healed. Once again, Luke 8, 39, Jesus says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. Has, has Jesus done anything for you? Has he done something good for you? Saved you, helped you, healed you, delivered you, rescued you, restored you, brought you home, forgiven you? We'll talk about that. <laughs> Don't talk about an ism. Don't talk about an ism, a movement. Don't do that. Talk about Jesus and talk personally. Talk, say, this is what Jesus has done for me. And somebody wants you to prove it or they challenge you on ideological grounds or theological grounds. You say, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a politician. I'm a person that Jesus has done this for. And you tell them what Jesus has done for you. That's all. That's, that's the sermon. That's it. Let's do that. Amen. Stand up with me. One more thing. We're going to... Uh, well, you can, you can encounter Jesus right now. We're going to make it easy for you because here we're going to do three things. First of all, we're going to confess our Christian faith. Just join in there and confess it with us. We're going to say, I believe, and then we're going to believe some things. And then we're going to confess our sins and receive the Lord's forgiveness. You can do that. Confess your sins, receive the Lord's forgiveness, and all your sins are forgiven. And then we're going to come and encounter Jesus Christ in the sacrament of communion. Someone will have bread and they'll say, the body of Christ broken for you, it is. Take the bread. Someone will have a cup. They'll say, the blood of Christ shed for you. Dip the bread in the cup and encounter Christ in a holy mystery. Amen? All right, let's confess our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. 
On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often, you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.